0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. All right, so if you didn't catch it, we are in First Timothy chapter 6. And if you need a pew Bible next to you, that's page 1180. So First 1 Timothy chapter 6 in God's Word. The Pew Bible is 1180, and that'll put you in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is where we are continuing God's word this morning. In 1925, F. Scott Fitzgerald published his well-known book, The Great Gatsby, and the book follows the life of Jay Gatsby and his obsession with the woman Daisy Buchanan. And as the narrative reveals, and spoiler alert, if you're in the middle of reading it, plug your ears at this point. Jay Gatsby has frantically accrued wealth at all costs because of his obsession with Daisy, who is a a married woman. Gatsby had been acquainted with her five years before he went off to World War I, but now because of her status, he has done everything he can to reinvent himself, literally changing his name, becoming filthy rich through bootlegging so that he can have the level of status that would draw her attention and therefore fulfill his desire. However, if you've ever read the book, you know it's a cautionary tale. It's a story full of desires that one finds tempting, but one is ultimately destroyed by such desires. They begin an adulterous affair. It ends in total destruction, including the murder of the once-considered protagonist, Jay Gatsby. The book is set in the roaring 20s. Opulence, decadence, excessive parties and mansions, and the empty pursuit of pleasure is the backdrop point of the book is to show the allure of worshiping wealth and status. Writing for the University of Miami, Charles Kettinger observes in his book, or sorry, in The Courier, The Odyssey, he writes, in a way, we are all like Gatsby. Striving for a vision of how we want our lives to be filled with monetary and social success in the future. And then he finishes his article by asking this penetrating question, what daisy are you dreaming of? In his article, he asks a question similar to today's passage. So the title of today's sermon is Cravings and Contentment. Cravings and Contentment. If you received a bulletin this morning, you'll see four movements in First Timothy 6, or if you downloaded the notes online. So we'll see four movements in First Timothy 6 that all deal with cravings and contentment. They deal with the heart. So look with me in God's Word. First, we'll look at number one on your handout. Teaching against Jesus springs from pride. And look in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. At the end of verse 2, it says, teach and urge these things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words... Of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an unhealthy craving. Now the verses that will go on will explain how this unhealthy craving has moved him in the wrong direction, but don't miss that that pride of that heart desire has pushed them away from Jesus himself and Jesus's sound words. The word sound in Greek is a word that's often translated healthy or correct or well. And you see in verse 4, if we don't have sound words, we have an unhealthy craving. Thus, there's something sick in us if we reject Jesus and his sound words. And that sickness we see is pride. Notice the descriptions of pride. Verse 4, puffed up with conceit, craving, controversy, quarreling, About words we might say majoring on minutiae these words that we quarrel over produce envy dissension slander evil suspicions constant friction among people when you only have a hammer the whole world is a nail and such constant friction defines those who've rejected christ and his sound words this unhealthy craving means that pride is like a virus contaminating all it touches like a cancer that eats us away R. Kent Hughes discovered this as a pastor, and so he writes on this text, when you crave controversy and word battles, you are spiritually sick. I've spent endless hours with such people, he writes, who cannot or will not grasp the plain meaning of a sentence or a paragraph in its context, but rather fix on a soundbite or give it a definition that defies lexicons, history, and logic. Nothing dissuades them. Nothing informs them. They understand nothing, and they enjoy it. This week, I got to do something that I only normally get to do about two or at the most three times a year. I got to golf. I <laughs> got to play with my dad, which was a lot of fun. And we were playing at RGA down here in Raleigh, and we ended up playing with another man who played with us. And my dad is really gifted this way, so I knew at some point during the 18 holes He'll turn the conversation to the gospel and so we were on I think the third or fourth hole and he said to the guy playing with us you know my son's a really good preacher (laughs) so I knew where this conversation is going so the guy says he says to me well are you a progressive preacher and I said well no sir I'm a very biblically conservative preacher I I preach what the bible says I'm really committed to that and he said well that's disappointing because we really need things to change you know And I said, well, I mean, you're right. We do need a lot of things to change, but isn't it great that God doesn't change and his word doesn't change? But then when he said next, caused me to really feel badly for him because he said, you know, I've been to church and I've noticed that I can go to three different churches that are preaching the same passage, but they all say three different things. Is that not sad? Now, we know as Christians that one sentence can have multiple implications or multiple applications, but one sentence just means one thing. So I said to him, you know, if, if I was God, I'd be so frustrated by that. Because if I call Papa John's Pizza and ask for a round pepperoni, and I get a square peanut butter sandwich, I'd be mad. Because <laughs> it's not what I said, right? And this is what this passage, it's so heartbreaking, isn't it? It's sad that in this passage we read that there are people... Because of our pride, that will say the opposite of what God says. Maybe it's helpful to know a little background here. Ephesus was a very, very wealthy city. And as a wealthy city, it drew false teachers who could make a living out of saying false things. Look at verse 5. It says, these people are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, but they don't care because they imagine godliness is a means of gain. Like Raleigh, Ephesus was a place you could come to and say something false and make a living from it. And so in this passage, uh, Paul's heart is broken that Christ is being walked away from. See, in, in verse 3, we read that what Jesus says accords with godliness. Actually, in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul said that Jesus is the mystery of godliness. In other words, there is no godliness apart from the real Jesus. Jesus affects godliness. He makes godliness. We, why pretend to have Christianity when you can have Christ? So it's such a heartbreaking thing that these scriptures describe phonyism. Paul will come back to this in 2 Timothy 3. He'll say, in the last days, there will be people who are lovers of their own selves. They're conceited. They love pleasure more than they love God. And then he says this in verse 5, they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny the real power thereof. Avoid such people, he says. It's a sad thing that Christianity can become a masquerade. A masquerade. And therefore, so does godliness. Like painting your house in washable marker, the appearance is not real. It's meant to deceive. Verse 5 says it's meant to deceive for the gain of those who are deceiving. So verse 5, it's a means of gain. What kind of gain? If you have the NIV, it says means to financial gain. If you have the net, it says a way of making profit. If you have the CSB, it says a way of making material gain. They're, They're right. It's a way for people in unhealthy, sick pride to even use the name of Jesus for personal financial improvement. Now, sadly, the world has caught how many charlatans exist in the name of the church, and every few years a new television show is made with biting satire to laugh at Christ and those who represent him falsely. We should lament over this, but we should remember that God will thoroughly judge, and we need not worry about if His name will be ultimately defamed. It will not. And so what we ought to do in today's passage is consider our own hearts. So look now at verse 4 and 5 and consider if any of these descriptions might be true of you. Verse 4, puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. Have you ever wanted to sound smart? Say what you don't fully understand because you want others to think of you as better than you are. Warren Wearsby put it well when he said, empty barrels make the most noise. The verse continues, verse 4, quarrels about words. Are you ever tempted to major on minutia, convinced that you alone understand what no one else understands? Verse 4 continues, these things produce envy, dissension, slander. Notice evil suspicions, always assuming bad of other people, but it's never you. Verse 5, constant friction among people, isolating yourself, always at aught with others. Have you ever played back a conversation in your mind, and you were the victor, and the other guy was wrong? This danger is one we're all capable of. I know I am. In my arguments with others, I can wrongly suspect others of ill motives that I'm imbuing on them that aren't actually true, and then therefore have friction that isolates me, assuming that I'm the only faithful one left. Verse 5, imagining that godliness, even Christianity, we might say, is a means of gain. Now, surely, you might be thinking this morning, well, I've never used the name of Christ For financial gain, but can't we play at Christianity, pretending to be godlier than we are, so that we're thought of by others in a way that isn't true to what we really are? Let me encourage you this morning, Christianity is not a means of personal betterment. Christianity is a means of knowing Jesus. It's not a means of earning status with other people. It's a means of relating to the Savior of sinners. And so conversely, we see number two, a great twist in the text. Trusting Jesus brings contentment. So verses three through five were how pride keeps us from Jesus. Now verses six through eight talks about contentment. We find in Jesus, look in verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Pretend we're in math class. What changed in the formula? Look at the end of verse five. Did you see the change? They think godliness is gain? What element of the equation were they missing? If it's algebra and we're solving for X, what is X here? What's the added word? Godliness plus what is gain? Contentment. Godliness, the religious practices, the religious things, the traditions, the Christian principles, on its own can't be used for gain. It's great gain, though, if it springs from a heart of contentment. There's the story of a king who was suffering from a persistent malady, and he was advised by his counselors that if they could find a shirt from a person who was content and he would wear it, that he would also feel content. And so they searched the whole kingdom, trying to find the shirt of a contented man, but none could be found. Lo and behold, they went to the edges of the realm, and they finally found a man who was content, but he had no shirt. <laughs> So they had nothing to bring back. Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter five, verse ten: "Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income." What's the secret? What's the difference? Contentment. Didn't Paul tell us in Philippians four, eleven through thirteen? I have learned. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. Did you notice the circumstances had no bearing on the contentment? Lots, little, much, nothing. Circumstances had no bearing. So what is the secret of the contentment? This is the verse he finishes with. I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens me? The secret is not the circumstances, the secret is the source. The source is Christ. Christ changes your cravings, therefore, you can experience contentment. So, verse 7 we brought nothing into this world, we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How? There's this source of joy springing up, regardless of the circumstances. Birth and death provide really helpful bookends to put in perspective our material wealth. When John D. Rockefeller died, one of his uh, workers asked, well, how how much did he leave behind? And the other guy said, he left it all behind. (laughs) Because that's how it works, right? Didn't Job tell us that? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked, I will return. Ecclesiastes 5.15, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and so as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. In life, we have a possessionless entrance and we have a possessionless exit. So how could that make us content? I mean, if we're only going, if we're thinking, how does this text help me realize This secret of contentment. Think again about verse 6. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. If you try godliness without contentment, it is a great burden. But if you have godliness with Christ as your source, it is a great gain. Think about it this way. If I go through the Christian motions, I will always find myself begrudging. But if I genuinely know Christ, I can sing these lyrics with meaning. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. That's enough. Because He is whom He is the one in whom my soul delights. The secret is the source. And the source is a spring of water that never runs dry. Christ is the secret. Alright, verses 7 through 8. How do these help me be content? How, how can he say, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content? In verse 8, all of us can be gripped by the tyranny of the present. All of us can forget that we have a possessionless entrance and exit. And so in the day's problems, we think, how are we going to? But here's why food and clothing is so helpful. What did Jesus teach us to pray for every day? Our daily what? You can say it out loud. Our daily Bread. bread. Don't you have that? So wait, if you have that, then hasn't God provided So then can't we richly trust Him to provide all things we need? Listen to Jesus afresh. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They don't labor. They don't spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes grass, which is here today, gone tomorrow, how much more will He clothe you, O you, of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you eat or what you drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan runs after such things, but your father knows you need them. So if he is giving us what we need every day, why would I think he can't give me what I need tomorrow? 1 John 2 then says, Do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. But verse 17 is very important. And the world is passing away in all of the lust thereof. But whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. Pity the person whose self-identity and hope rest on transient things. D.A. Carson says it well. Ten billion years into eternity, it'll seem a little daft to puff yourself up over the car you drive, the amount of money or education you receive, the number of books you own, the number of times your name made it to the headlines. Whether or not you've won an Academy Award will then prove less important than whether or not you were true to your spouse. Whether or not you were a basketball star will be less significant than how generously you gave away. The one who does the will of the Lord abides forever, and Christ is that life. All right, number one was teaching against Jesus really comes from pride. Number two, trusting in Jesus brings supernatural contentment, the secret source. But Now number three, craving earthly riches leads us away from Jesus. Now, if you feel like we're in a ping-pong game, we are. <laughs> That's what Paul's doing here. He's hitting on one side and then back to the other side. Now we're back to the other side again. So back to the side of craving something other than Christ, the danger of that. So now, verse 9. But those who—and don't miss these words of desire. If you have my downloaded notes, you see the yellow highlighting with all the words that are words of craving. Words of your heart's want. So verse 9, those who desire. We'll see it again in verse 9. Desire, verse 10, love of money. And then craving, also in verse 10. Four words about what your heart really truly wants. Not what you say, but internally what you're really, really concerned about. So verse 9, those who desire to be rich. Now to be clear, we're going to get to this at the end of the passage. It's not wrong to be rich. It's not wrong to have money. That's not what he's saying here nor is it what he's saying anywhere in the Bible. We'll get there later. This is, again, about what your heart wants, okay? So verse 9, those who desire to be rich. And then he gives three vivid descriptions of what happens when that's what you truly want in life, verse 9. When you desire to be rich, you fall into first temptation. It's a word that illustrates a fisherman's lure. It's hanging out there, pulling at you, trying to get you to bite. The next phrase, into a snare Picture an animal hanging from a trap. The next phrase, into many senseless and harmful desires. And then look how vivid the next description is, that plunge people. Picture an ocean tide sucking you under into ruin and destruction. Now verse 10, to be clear, money is not evil. But verse 10 says, the love of money. And notice it's the root not of every single evil, but of all kinds of evil. So many different kinds of evil come from this rotten root. And again, notice it's a hard issue. Verse 10 continues. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. Now you might be saying, Josh, how did you get Jesus out of, out of this? Number three, I wrote, as craving earthly riches leads us away from Jesus. But is that not how Paul describes the faith, right? So when he ends by verse 10 saying, this craving will pull you away from the faith. That is fair to say. This craving will pull you away from Jesus. Jesus taught that as well, right? He said you can't worship God and mammon or money. Craving money... Moves us away from faith In Jesus how Because then I transfer My trust To things I think money can secure Let me explain that in a few Different ways We use currency To move our Heart's cravings to where They most effortlessly go Okay we use currency To satisfy our heart's Cravings to where they most effortlessly Go If you crave the way you look, you'll move currency to your wardrobe or those sorts of things. If you crave the security of your physical house as your temple, you'll effortlessly, thoughtlessly move currency there because that's the place that you view of as your sanctuary. Currency is where you most effortlessly, thoughtlessly move what your heart wants. But think about how that might actually move you away from Jesus. I know a true story of two ladies who, when they graduated from college, they believed God wanted them to go to the mission field. They were so excited about this. They came home to their parents and said, we think God is calling us to the mission field. And their parents said, no, 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 no. We don't want you to do that. We want you to go back and get a master's degree so you can have security. You see what the parents think? The parents think money equals Security And so these two girls, they were so discouraged. They went back to the, the minister who had been used by God to motivate them for missions. And they said, we don't know what to do. Our parents won't let us go to the mission field. They want us to get another degree and get into our earnings so that we have better security for our life. And he said, well, why don't you just go back to your parents and tell them this? We're on this little ball of rock called Earth. <laughs> and it spins a zillion miles an hour. And one day a trapdoor opens underneath all of us, and we either fall to the everlasting arms of the Heavenly Father or we eternally plunge to condemnation. And you think a master's degree is going to give you security? And when you put it that way, you realize that money or our craving for it actually can indicate that we're not trusting Jesus. We're looking to something else to give us security only God gives or we're looking at something else to give a status only God gives. Now, I just told you, I only golf maybe two, three times a year. But there's a country club on Glenwood that I pass all the time, and it's killing me because I can't pass without thinking, I want to play there one of these days, you know? But I'm told it's a private club. And I think private means you either have to be a senator or a criminal or preferably both <laughs> to play it. Um, so... Isn't it interesting, though, if we're just being really real with each other? We live in Five Points, we live in Raleigh, we live in 2022, and isn't it easy to think, man, I just want a little more stuff so that I can be accepted by a certain group of people. I just want a little more stuff so that other people will think I'm on their footing. Maybe if I come from the right school, or if I have the right house, or if I have the right things, then these people will open that door And they'll let me in. Do you know a lot of people know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, but very few people remember what was happening in the early church? Remember what was happening in the early church that caused Ananias and Sapphira to make up the story about giving money? Do you remember what was happening? The church was growing, it was exciting. It was the kind of time where you slap your church symbol on the back of your SUV and I'm like, I'm with them. I want everyone to know I go to that church because it's the exciting church. It's the growing church. It's the thriving church. It's the time where people are coming out of the woodwork to volunteer for positions because it's this really thrilling moment in church. Other people are giving. Other people are excited. That's the time that Ananias and Sapphira lie. Why did they lie? For approval. Approval. See, the issue wasn't money. It was craving money because they wanted something only God can give you, acceptance. We use these cravings to get something only God can give. So let's think about them both for a second. If you think, well, this will give me security. Listen to this parable from Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I love when people yell things out to Jesus like that. Tell my brother to do what he's supposed to do. And here's what Jesus says. Who'd made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Of course, he's inviting him to think about who he's talking to. But then he said, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, you know what I'll do? I'll tear this down and I'll build bigger barns. And I'll store my grain and goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, do you remember this parable? Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. If we think our possessions will give us security, God says that's foolish. All right, if we think our possessions will give us acceptance and approval... Well, if I have more, then the right people will let me in. The right people will embrace me. Listen to Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Have you ever thought about that? Through money, we think we can earn status. The only status that matters is the one we didn't earn. In fact, the only wages we brought to the table are the sin that made the cross necessary. And yet there, Jesus pays all the penalty and then eternally accepts us totally by grace. So then why would I be trying to earn when the best thing I'll ever have was a gift? So build on the rock, not on the sand. Number four. And here the text takes another twist. Godliness and earthly riches can coexist. Now look in verse 17 of verse Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, and that includes all of us to some degree, charge them not to be haughty. The Puritan Cotton Mather said this, religion begat prosperity and the daughter devoured her mother. (laughs) Think about that. Success is a blessing that often comes from trusting the Lord and living in the right way, but that success itself is dangerous. So charge the rich not to be haughty. They've been blessed by God, but now it's actually more tempting for them to move to arrogance. Not only is it more tempting for us to move to arrogance because of the things that we think We have a part in having acquired, but also it's easy for us to slowly fade our hope away from God. Look at how verse 17 continues. Not only should we not be haughty, but we should not set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Have you seen these commercials these people make where Fidelity has like a green line that somehow never messes up and if you invest in them, everything's going to go perfectly? What a lie. Riches are uncertain. Intrinsically, they're uncertain. Proverbs 24, 4-5 through five says this, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they're gone for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. But look at how the text continues in verse 18. As we are so rich, how should we by God's grace demonstrate our riches are not holding us? Verse 18. He gives four specific things in verse 18. First, do good. Those who are rich are to do good. I think this is the most obvious one. Don't use your wealth for bad. Use it for good. Then the next one. Be rich in good works. You see the Subtle wisdom of that one right So let you the riches of your character Outstrip the riches Of your currency Then it continues and Be generous and then the next one Willing to share so make sure that Your riches are being pushed away And notice the word Willing not grudgingly But gladly Now I want you to just Notice a couple things that are happening here that sometimes We forget did you know that Every stage of discipleship, every change that's unique to our life requires slightly different discipleship. In other words, God is never afraid to talk to men specifically or women specifically or younger people specifically or older people specifically. And in this church in Ephesus, the Bible is not afraid to say some of you are more wealthy and you'll have unique troubles. All of us are wealthy by any global standard but some will have unique troubles unique temptations art rayner is a former uh, professor at southeastern and he wrote especially on this text and i thought it was really helpful he says this from my experience those who are rich battle against the desire to find their hope and security in wealth they regularly struggle to spend time with family because of a busy work schedule and they find it to difficult they find it difficult to meaningfully connect with others in the church Just as a mom of young children has struggles specific to her life situation, so does someone who's wealthy. Yet those who have means find it difficult to express their struggles in front of those who they think have lesser means, so they struggle in silence. Rainer continues, while their wealth and experiences may differ from others, God's desire for them is no different than from anyone else. God doesn't want our money, he wants our heart. So look now in verse 17 and 18 again, and think about the application, but think carefully about ourself. Let God do His work in our own heart. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Friend, do you look at what you have and think, I deserve this. I've earned this. That is a dangerous spot. Do you look at others who haven't achieved what you have achieved, and do you just assume that they made poor choices? Had they made the kind of choices I made, then they would have the kind of success I have. This is sinfulness. This is pride. The next phrase, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides. Remember Abraham in the Bible? He was one of the wealthiest men in the world in his time and place. He had more possessions than anybody or anything. What did God ask him to do with his beloved son Isaac? To offer him. What was Abraham confident of though? We read this from Hebrews 11. What was Abraham confident of that caused him to bring Isaac to the top of the mountain ready to even put him to death? Do you remember what Hebrews 11 says? What was Abraham confident of? That God would even raise him from the dead. So when it came time Abraham didn't count his cattle. He didn't count his material. He didn't count his possessions. He said, no, I know God's heart. And I know God will provide what I need. Isn't that exactly what Romans 8 tells us in verse 31? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So the next time you look for security, look at the cross. Verse 18. Rich in good works. Generous, ready to share. Generosity is the ultimate fruit proving that the ax has been laid to the root of a craving for money rather than trusting what God gives freely. My favorite example in Scripture is Zacchaeus. He had so much What did he automatically do without even needing to be told to do it? As soon as he received grace from Jesus, Jesus who cared about a little guy up high in a tree, Jesus who said, I'm going to your house, Jesus who gave abundant grace, what did Zacchaeus do? Gave it away. Why? Because he knew Jesus will provide for me. Verse 19 puts it all home for us. Thus storing up Treasure. For themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is true life? The answer in the Bible is true life is life you cannot buy. Isaiah 55, verse 1 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy. And eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why is God calling us to buy without any money? Because He provides the currency. And it's the blood of His Son. Second Corinthians eight verse nine. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Come with money you don't have. Buy with income you don't possess because he became poor so you could be rich. So don't put your fingers on a calculator to assess your life Put your eyes on the cross. This text is about cravings and contentment. And it's told us that cravings isolate, causes us to be suspicious of other people. Cravings destroy, it causes us to be caught in a snap, a a snare or a trap. Cravings disintegrate, they're uncertain intrinsically. Conversely, though, it's talked about contentment. Contentment is humble, we become poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing in, we bring nothing out. We're content with what he gives. But why are we content with that? Because we know he gives richly. God will never give less than you would give. Never. Now this text tells us that financial matters are really matters of the heart. They're really matters of identity. They can't be fixed with a budget because they deal with what we love. But God's call for generosity is really a call For surrendered faith. What did Jesus say if you would follow him? Take up your cross. Die daily. When we do that with our money, we're doing the same thing. Now, this is a struggle for me. Maybe it's a struggle for you too. But I want you to know that God's so gracious, he'll even help you in the struggle. Paul David Tripp understood this and he wrote, I am naturally stingy with my money. I naturally think of myself first. I close my eyes to needs of other people, and I tend to love things more than I should, and so I want money to put those things in my hand. I tend to think of my money as my money. But some years ago, God in tender and patient grace began to do a work in my heart. It didn't happen overnight. But God has worked to dethrone my love of money and enthrone in my heart a desire to incarnate generosity. So remember that God is heroic in the generosity of His grace. He generously pours down on us even in moments when we're not crying out for help. But God knew I needed to be rescued from me. And so God changed my heart. Let's look to the God who does that together in prayer. Father God, we're about to partake in communion. And as we focus on the death of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Move our hearts to trust in the provision of our Heavenly Father. God, you did not spare your own Son. How could we not trust you to graciously provide all good things? Show us this morning that when we tighten the grip over what we think is ours, we forget to trust the God who has provided all that we need. So Lord, help us to open our hand and ask and seek and knock because we do not have a Father who will give us stone when we ask for bread or a scorpion when we ask for fish. Have you not provided us safely thus far? Surely you've been more gracious than we have been believing. And so remind us this morning not to set our hope on uncertainty but to look who the God who is able and willing to meet us in every moment let us not number our cattle let us look to the God who raises the dead perhaps this morning someone is being convicted to come to Christ at the cross for the first time perhaps they have thought of their status in terms of what they've earned they've thought of their security in terms of what they possess But this morning they have realized that there is a love that can never be lost and there is a rock that will never crumble and that person is Jesus Christ. Help them to call on the name of the Lord and be saved and pray something like, Father God, I thought that I had all of these things but now I see that Jesus is where those satisfaction is found. May they come and buy with the money that Christ provides. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraligh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.